Welcome to the audio ministry of Grove Park Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina. We pray you will be blessed by today's message. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter number I'm surprised when Scarlett talked about Sour Patch Kids that Eliza didn't say what she normally says, which is when the statement is made that they are first sour, then sweet, that uh, that's an apt description of me. Uh, something my doctor proved this week when uh, she told me that the only thing I had wrong with me was that I was a little too sweet. And uh, I, I told her I've been trying to eat lemon Oreos, and uh, so now I don't have to do that. Um, if y'all are trying to figure out why I'm talking about lemon Oreos, supposedly Carolina had a ball player that found out, you know, Hubert found out that he liked lemon Oreos, and for three games he played wonderfully, and the whole world was buying lemon Oreos, and last night it didn't work. So, so, Genesis 39, would you pray with me? Lord, we again return to a well-known passage of Scripture. Today we look at it through a different lens. And we pray, Lord, that as we do, you would bless us to hear what you would have us to hear today. Because, Lord, our desire is to be grace-filled change agents in our world. And we know, Lord, that to do that, multiple things are required of us. And one is to understand the issues that our world is grappling with. So as we again look today to a privilege, help us to hear from you. And to hear where you are calling us in our lives to make light and cast off the burdens that so many are bearing. Bless me with the words that are needed, O oh God, for this time and place as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Last week, we saw the perils that privilege brings as we began our Lenten journey with Joseph. Joseph's beginnings laid bare the fallacy that privilege is, on the whole, something that is achieved by merit. Rather, we saw that privilege is something that we generally just luck into through birth or familial connections, or someone else's bestowal of undeserved or unmerited grace into our lives. Joseph's early life displayed that part of the perils of privilege is that it will cause us to lead graceless lives that are blind to what we say and do impact on others. Sadly for Joseph, his privilege caused him to run afoul, we saw last week, with his brothers who sold him into slavery and perpetrated a deceit that resulted in unnecessary sorrow for Joseph's father Jacob and unnecessary sorrow for Joseph. For our narrative picks up today with Joseph's enslavement and shows us some additional aspects of privilege. Namely, that privilege is accompanied by power and the temptation to misuse and abuse that power. The opening lines of Genesis 39 introduce us to Joseph's new station in life. He has been sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers and the captain of the guard, the text tells us. The text goes on to show that Joseph excels at Potiphar's house and soon becomes the head of all that Potiphar had. Potiphar literally entrusted everything, we are told, except for Potiphar's food to Joseph. We're also told at the end of verse 6 that Joseph, as he has entered into his 20s, has become quite handsome. Indeed, the language that the author uses here is often used throughout Scripture for a very beautiful woman. That is how attractive Joseph has grown into. And that beauty has attracted some attention, some unwanted attention from Potiphar's wife whose subsequent actions expose one of the temptations of privileged power, and that is its use for one's own pleasure. Look with me at verse number 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, 
Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph goes to work every day and he is met with the same request from this woman. We have no clue what her age is. We don't know how she looks. We don't know anything about her other than she is Potiphar's wife and that she has one thing and one thing on her mind. She wants Joseph. She wants Joseph for her own pleasures. She's not concerned about anything else. The interesting thing about Potiphar's wife's advances is that the only reason she can do what she's doing, the only reason she can pursue what she is pursuing, is through her privilege of being Potiphar's, excuse me, being Potiphar's wife, being the wife of Joseph's master. She wants her desire met and will do it through the power of her privilege because on her own she has no power. She is a woman. She is a woman in a patriarchal world. She has no power. She has no power other than she is Potiphar's wife. If she had power, beloved, don't you think we'd have known what her name was? She has come down to history simply as Potiphar's wife. No name except through the one who grants her her privilege. No name except through the one who gives her her status. No name except through the one who gives her the power that she uses, that she exercises to attempt to get Joseph to be her pleasure. Beloved, privilege will make us believe we are more powerful than we truly are. And it will very often occur as we make others, like poor Joseph in our text, miserable for our own pleasures or capricious whims. We, beloved, must always be on guard against just such temptations. Or we become like Potiphar's wife. We often think to ourselves, as we read this text, that we are not anyone in this text other than Joseph. But when we use our privilege to get what we want for our own pleasures, we change character roles immediately into Potiphar's wife. And that is not the one that we should be pursuing in the text this morning. Secondly, we should note 
that privilege power makes us believe that we have license to say whatever we wish regardless of its truth. Look with me at verse number 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she called him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me. To laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. I don't know about you, beloved, but I haven't seen this story anywhere else in the text. I have seen Potiphar's wife say, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, day after day. I have seen that she is is using a, a homophone here for lie because she's the one doing the lying. She knows what the truth is. She knows exactly what the truth is. But because Joseph has spurned her, because Joseph has taken and upended what she thought was power and says, no, it is not power. She's taken what she thought was privilege. And he says, no, you don't have that right here. You do not have that privilege. Because he has upended that, then she will say, well, I'll show you what power is. And I'll twist it. I'll twist the truth. I won't even twist truth. I will make a lie to prove to you I am what I am. Sadly, beloved, this is not a singular circumstance. History and current events are riddled with such occurrences, large and small, with people who are in power, who have privilege, using that power and privilege to speak untruths and flat-out fabricated lies to advance their own position. Sixty-eight years ago this summer, 14-year-old Emmett Till was falsely accused by 21-year-old Carolyn Bryant of accosting her in a store in Money, Mississippi. Supposedly, he had also whistled at her. The problem was, he may have whistled, but he certainly didn't accost her. But Bryant used her privilege as a white woman in the South in the 1950s to say that the young African-American from Chicago had done this. Until was brutally, brutally murdered 
because of the lie. Privilege run amok. And you say, oh, but Pastor Mark, we are further along in our nation than this. No, beloved, no, no. For just three years ago, May the 25th, 2020, an African American was accused of accosting a white woman in New York's Central Park as he was bird watching and he caught the whole thing on camera as she made unnecessary accusations against him thinking that people would believe her over him. She thought her privilege would get her somewhere, but it didn't. It's a never-ending tale, beloved. We see it similarly in the use of in media's privilege and the power that it nightly platforms before us as it gives media personalities and politicians opportunity to say whatever they please without consequence, generally furthering the divides that are already fracturing our nation and that they often do so to maintain or increase their power. I again wished I could say this was not new, but we see it throughout our nation's history. We see it in the use of newspapers in the earliest days of the republic as they would attack and make scurrilous lies. We see it in the very phrase of yellow journalism in the late 19th century as they would use newspapers to foment the lies that ultimately would lead us to war, something that occurs again and again in American and human history. We see it on into the 1950s with Joseph McCarthy getting up and saying whatever he wanted to about communists in the government and he used his position and his power to hurt and to maim and to destroy lives. Beloved, hear me, that is not just entertainment which we have somehow or another thought it to become in our nation. It is sin. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that we cannot aid or abet such careless privilege at any level, at any cost in our nation. And we should not also fail to understand that we are called upon to declare as false what is false and to stand up for truth when we know it to be truth. We should also demand better of all that we see. We should demand for truth regardless of how it may hurt our cause or force us to change. For our failure to do so, beloved, our failure to do so impairs our witness. How does it impair our witness? Beloved, let me remind each of us this morning that you and I serve the sovereign Lord of glory who walked among us and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Beloved, it's not that Jesus represents some form of truth. It is not Jesus represents the greatest ideals of truth. 
Jesus is the truth. And when the truth is impaired at any part of society, it reflects back on him. And when we allow ourselves to be used for the impairment of truth in society, through whatever means that is, it is a reflection back on Jesus. But notice also this morning the temptation of privileged power causes us to draw unnecessary distinctions. Look at verse number 14. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And then go back down to number 17. And she told him, Potiphar, the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. <clears throat> she just didn't say the servant. She didn't just say the one that you put in charge. She didn't call him for what he really was. She didn't call him the overseer or the manager. What does she call him? The Hebrew Servant. Well, Mark, he was a Hebrew. What is that got to do with anything, beloved? What does that have to do with anything here in the text? Nothing. Nothing at all. Particularly if you look at it in light of the fact that Egyptian culture was an extremely open culture. Egyptians were known far and wide for marrying interculturally. And so for her to draw this distinction is particularly poignant. But it also speaks to another aspect of Egyptian culture. You see, the Egyptians were good with going out and marrying people of, of, of other cultures. They just expected you when, they came, when you came to Egypt to be Egyptian. They expected you to change to be like them. And that is what she's drawing on here. That's why she's saying Hebrew. He hadn't become like us. How do you know that, Mark? Well, beloved, did you, did you catch why Joseph wouldn't, let's just call it for what it is, sleep with her? Did you catch that? Verse number nine, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and what? Sin against God. Joseph here hasn't adopted any Egyptian gods. Joseph here has pointed to the one true living God. He has pointed to Yahweh. He has said in his denial of her, I am not Egyptian. I am not conforming. I am going to maintain my religious allegiance. I am going to maintain my distinctiveness. Beloved, her calling him Hebrew, her making that distinction shows us that privileged power will cause us to say ours is the ideal and that everyone should conform and that all other forms are inferior. 
In doing so, though, we must understand that this is a denial of who God made us to be. We should use the power we have to celebrate and to learn from all of our differences, from all of our backgrounds. And beloved, understand at this moment in American history, this is more important than ever before because we live in the most multicultural society we have ever lived in. There has never been a point in American history like there is today. Think about it. We were riding last yesterday afternoon to, to Greensboro for lunch. And Eliza said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, what I want, I can't get. And she said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I want us to go to a restaurant where I can get some good Eastern North Carolina meatloaf with a side of Ziki sauce and some tandoori chicken on the side. Now, how many of you know of a place that has country cooking with Greek and uh, Indian flavor? Don't, can't find it, right? But you know, we can take a tour of Greensboro. I mean, Greensboro. And we can find Mexican and Indian and country cooking. and We can find it all. This past Christmas, we really did celebrate Christmas in the way that our family has always celebrated Christmas. We went for lunch at the Chinese place here in Burlington. And when my mother got here, we took her to High Point to eat Indians. We live in a multicultural place, beloved, and no way can we ever exercise our privilege to say that ours is better than anyone else. Now, beloved, understand something. It doesn't mean that we have to, we have to necessarily embrace everything. But it does mean that we should at least encounter and expose ourselves. And we don't have to say that ours in the process is the only right way of doing everything. One of the great privileges of my life is that I married a girl from the eastern shore of Maryland. You would think there's not a lot of difference between the eastern shore of Maryland and eastern North Carolina, but let me tell you, there's loads. And if no other thing, I have learned to experience another culture and appreciate it and learn that despite the fact that I think that North Carolina is great, and despite the fact that I think that eastern North Carolina is the greatest place on earth, and despite the fact that I love North Carolina culture, I don't go to Maryland and eat, sit down at a crab shack and go, well, this ain't North Carolina cooking. No, I say, bring me some crab cakes. I don't say our oysters are better than anybody else's. No, I, I've learned that the Chesapeake Bay's got some pretty daggone good oysters. I don't say our beaches are better than theirs. I don't say this is better than that. I've learned, beloved, to be who I am and take the best because God made it all. And despite the fact that 
that, that in eastern North Carolina, we believe that passage in Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth and he looked down and he said that he looked on the dry land and he said it was good that they were looking. At, he was looking at rich lands, North Carolina, when he said it. He was really looking at the whole world. And he declared, it is good. Privilege prevents me from thinking that, though. Now, we spent a lot of time focusing on the sins that privilege can bring, but very briefly, I want us to look at the victims of privilege. And in this case, it's Joseph. Joseph has been enslaved. He has been abused by his own family. He's been lied about, and he is at the end of this text this morning in chapter 39, imprisoned unjustly. Nothing can go right for him, right? Nothing is going right for Joseph, right? Wrong. Because throughout all of this, there's a thread. We find the thread woven in verses 2, 3, 4, 21, and 23 because in each one of those verses we are told one very important thing. God was with Joseph. Joseph is oppressed. Joseph has been abused by the temptations and perils of privilege. Maybe that's just the only time this has happened, but no, it's not. Because the preponderance of the biblical witness shows us that in the spot that Joseph inhabits here in the text, the spot that so many inhabit across our globe, the, so many, the spot that so many inhabit regularly is the spot that God himself inhabits with them. We see it in God's continued call through the prophets for justice for those who are the victims of injustice. We see it in the limitations that the law provides for the enslaved in the Old Testament, in the fact that the law provides for their ultimate freedom in the Jubilee Codes, as well as the call for the return of the land to those who had to sell it under adverse circumstances, that they get it back so that they're not landless and therefore more oppressed. We see it in the inclusion in the festivals by the dictate of the law for the sojourner in their midst. We see it in God's continual call throughout the scriptures to look after the widow and the orphan. And by the way, we are told in the book of James that this is religion that God considers pure. We hear it when God tells us that He is near to the brokenhearted. And beloved, that is not simply the brokenhearted due to the loss of a loved one. It is the brokenhearted due to the oppression of society. We see it most clearly in the fact that we see God on a cross on a Friday afternoon taking upon Himself the sins of the world. Sins, beloved. Oppression and the misuse of privilege is a sin. And yet he takes it on himself there and he declares it what? Overcome. He declares it forever 
vanquished. He identifies, therefore, forever with the ones who have ultimately been on the receiving end of so much sin. And He invites each of us today to join Him in that task as well. Why? Because He tells us to take up their cause. He tells us to take up their cause when He tells us to carry our cross. He tells us to take up their cause when He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He tells them to take up, tells us to take up their cause when He says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. He takes up their cause when He tells us stories about a Samaritan who is robbed on the side of the road. He takes us to take up their cause when He reaches out His hand and heals a leper or brings sight to the blind. He tells us to take up their cause and to set aside our privilege and our power when He Himself is simply touched and power goes out of Him to heal a woman who has had and been disassociated by society because of a health condition for 18 years. Power flees from Him and He doesn't rebuke her for touching Him. He just welcomes her back into the household of the faithful. He tells us, beloved, to forego our sense of entitlement and privilege and take up His cause. Privilege by itself, beloved, is not bad. If it is used properly to advocate, to lift up, to lessen the burden of others in this world. The world is looking for God. The world is looking for God. Someone came in this morning and they said to me, they said, Preacher, revival has broke out in Chapel Hill. And what made them think that? Because last night at the end of the ball game, you could see on the screen people were earnestly praying. I mean, you could, you, this one old gal, she had her hands, she had her head bowed, and you could just. And I was just sitting there going, Amen. You say, I'm pretty sure that's basketball. Beloved, the world's looking for God. They might not even know that they're looking for God, but they're looking for God. And we know where He is. We know where He is. We know He is with the oppressed. We know where He is. And we, when we take up their cause, we show the world that God hasn't forgotten the forgotten of the world, but that He is with them and loves them, and we love them, And that God is alive and well and moving in this world. Not through some outcome of a ball game, but through lives being changed through the power of the gospel. Through lives that are lifted up where humanity is cherished. And the dignity and worth of everyone that God created is declared. Where the statement of God, you are beloved, is heard again and again and again. And so if we must forego privilege or use it properly to do so. If we have to to just sort of 
take off our coat and just sort of set it aside and say, okay, all right. Boy, I hate to do this. Let me tell you. You know, there's one thing in life I hate to do is get out and do yard work. But if, but if just for a minute, I had to go do it and I had to roll my sleeves up and I had to get my hands dirty and I had to show that, yeah, I might live in the HOA, but I'm going to go out there and do work myself. If I got to do that for the gospel, beloved, because ultimately that's what Jesus did for me when he went to the cross, then I can cast it all aside and do it. The question is today, will you? Will you? Joseph, in the next sermon, will use his privilege to save the world that was known at that time. God calls us to that task today. Will we do it? Let's pray. Father, it's not easy to hear what we've heard today. I know it wasn't easy to say it. But Lord, neither was the cross easy. Neither was the forsaking of all that Jesus forsook in heaven to come and dwell among us easy. I, I can't imagine living and, as a poor, underprivileged carpenter in Nazareth was easy. But yet he did all of it, Lord, for us. And so, Lord, we hear you call us to do it today. To speak truth where truth is needed. To not draw unnecessary distinctions. To set aside our pleasure for the work of God. To lift up the oppressed. And to say God is with you and so are we. Lord help us by your spirit to achieve that today as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit groveparkchurch.net. And remember, grace abound.